Hello, and welcome to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the host of the podcast, and also the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, I am not making that up. But my guest today, uh, two special ones. We've got Howdy Holmes, uh, the president and CEO of Jiffy Mixes. And if you've ever been to a grocery store, you've seen that. Uh, the little blue box, of course, uh, corn muffins, blueberry muffins, and so on and more. And his son, Howard Holmes, the executive vice president and the chief operating officer at Jiffy Mixes. So without further ado, gentlemen, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. First, let's give us a bit of background on Jiffy Mixes. I know it's also known as Chelsea Million locally, but nationally it's known, I'm sure, as Jiffy Mixes, a legendary family company. Um, with how, uh, Howdy, your grandmother's famous phrase, it is so easy, a man can do it. Please walk us through the family history. Well, uh, it, it's, it's, it's 134 years old, so we don't have that much time. But essentially, <laughs> it, uh, it started as a Chelsea milling company, started as a, a flour milling company in Chelsea, Michigan, uh, under the name of Chelsea Roller Mills. And my uh, great-grandfather came from Dexter at the age of 18 to Chelsea, got involved in a variety of businesses, became one of the partners in the Chelsea Roller Mills. And in the late 1887, uh, he bought out the other partners and changed the name to Chelsea Milling Company in 1901. You mentioned my uh, grandmother, she had a significant role uh, in our company, uh, invented the very first uh, retail prepared mix ever, all purpose. Uh, ever in the world, that is. A retail prepared mix. I mean, we, we all know, I mean, a cake mix and so on, we've all heard of that a million times. She invented this. Mabel Holmes invented this. She did. And uh, she, she was uh, a significantly bright, ambitious uh, young lady and... Uh, and just determined to uh, to save people time in the kitchen, quite frankly. And then the famous line, "So easy, even a man can do it." But the her her purpose was uh, uh, sort of motivated by uh, her two sons, identical uh, twins, um, had a friend in in the neighborhood in Chelsea that was being raised by a single parent, happened to be the father, and the uh, Howard and Dudley, the twins invited his uh, their friend over for uh, lunch one day, but he was a little reluctant reluctant this is like nineteen twenty six mm-hmm. to, uh, to to you know come over because his dad had made him a a bag lunch and but he finally caved in and uh, came over to have lunch with uh, Howard and Dudley and my grandmother um, you know kind of quietly took a look into this bag lunch to see what this young man's father had made him, and right on the top was she referred to it like uh, you know a biscuit. She kind of described it more like a white hockey puck. So isn't that interesting? <laughs> and she was struck, uh, John, uh, by the knowing the amount of time uh, to make biscuits in 1926. Everything was done from scratch, and so right. she she was just really. Uh, overwhelmed with, with the dedication of this father making biscuits for, in this case, his son. And so mm-hmm. I swear she got the idea that, you know, I'm going to develop something that could save people time in the kitchen and 
and she did. Uh, took four and a half years or so, but in April of 1930, uh, she introduced the, the first ever retail prepared baking mix, and uh, and so uh, our second product. And, and what what was the first product? Uh, first, muffins. No, first product was all-purpose baking mix. You could make all kinds ah. of things, you know, all-purpose baking mix. Uh, so muffins, waffles, mm-hmm. uh, uh, biscuits, all, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, in the in the world of, of baking uh, and, and the use of flour, there are many different types of flour, some that are more appropriate for, let's say, pie crust than others, some more appropriate for muffins. They get specialized, but the, the general all-purpose uh, product is uh, is a all-purpose baking mix. I think and that uh, can be that can be used for muffins, obviously. Yeah, lots uh, of things. Pancakes, yeah. all kinds of stuff. Lots so. of stuff. So our second product was uh, pie crust in 1940, and, and well, no, that, no, let's back it up. Though. Let's let's have, have some fun with this one. Okay. 1930 at the start of the Great Depression, of course. So right. cheap was good, obviously convenient, a bonus. Yeah. Um, this thing literally sold like hotcakes, correct? It's a uh, <laughs> very popular product. No pun intended, but yes, it did. Sorry about that. Too easy. Too easy. Yeah. <laughs> but it did sell. It, 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 she hit something, didn't she? She did, and. Uh, you, you know, the idea of um, saving people time in the kitchen was uh, welcomed by all. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, there was a, a world war in there and, and um, you know, all the men were, were gone pretty much. And, and it, it's always been up to the, the women to take care of the family, you know, feed people and so on. So it was mm-hmm. a it was an unbelievable kind of invention. One one that I don't think she ever really uh, got the credit that she deserved. Uh, she's in the Michigan Hall of Fame, but I think that uh, I think she ought to have a place in Henry Ford Museum <laughs> as an example. Well, we're working on it on this side. I'll tell you that. So yeah. I've got to ask, what happened to the single father and his son? Well, um, I don't know that answer. Uh, I assume that. Uh, you know, graduated from Chelsea High School, and what happened after that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was uh, just a just a thought in those days. Of course, um, but I hopefully got well fed thanks to your mom's uh, great new invention. So yeah, yeah, uh, let's hope for that. And the great line, of course, so easy, even a man can do it. Yeah, go Mabel, go. So in nineteen forty, <laughs> your second product comes along. Yep, and that pie is crust, a pie crust, right? And uh, you know, at this point in time, people. Uh, you know, there just there wasn't other companies, and uh, I'll say copied uh, um, what Mabel did. And in fact, General Mills was the second company to come out with an all-purpose baking wow. mix as well. Uh, They're based in Minneapolis, correct? It's that little company, General Mills. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of them. Yes. <laughs> I, so they're number two behind yeah. Chelsea Milling slash Jiffy Mixes. So very cool. Well, the difference was, of course, you know, we're a very small company in Chelsea, Michigan. They were a very large company then, and they still are now. So in terms of getting distribution and and, and finding customers, we were selling things, uh, you know, our product uh, out of the trunk of a car. And, wow. uh, in fact, our first customer was, uh, you know, in Detroit, uh, R.A. Smith was the name of the, of the company. And, um, so General Mills with, you know, their, their staff of people and 
certainly got distribution uh, much faster than we, um, you know, we could. And uh, but still, they were number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And by the way, also uh, making a great product, of course, is only half the battle. You also need customers, distributors, whatnot, a whole infrastructure. Uh, to support that product, to this day, I believe you guys are almost entirely vertical, correct? I mean, almost almost a self-contained company. Is that correct? Yeah. How do you want to take that? Sure. Um, you're right, John, when you describe us as a vertically integrated business. Uh, Howdy jokes all the time about the only thing we don't do is grow the crops. Uh, and, and, you know, technically that that's pretty accurate. We uh, actually have a flour mill on our campus so we mill wheat into flour. We have our own mixing department, uh, packaging department, warehousing. We even have our own fleet of trucks. Um, there's a lot of advantages that come along with that. It keeps us significantly closer to quality uh, because we do every part of the process ourselves. And then, of course, it allows us to control our cost because we're not involving other businesses that are trying to make a profit of their own, which then we would have to absorb uh, in our process. So it, it, it's certainly been a strategy that's worked for us. And, and, and additionally, having everything on one campus allows us to communicate better uh, and, and make better decisions because we're, we're all in one area. And you know literally everybody who works there, I believe. Oh, yeah. We, we do. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's important. Um, uh, you know, we are a family business and, and we, we think of our employees as um, you know, a family as well. It's not biological, but in some ways it's, it's, it's a little bit better because, you know, the biological family uh, is difficult to maintain sort of an even keel. But when you have employees that you care for deeply uh, and they in turn respond with respect uh, and determination, it's a pretty powerful thing. Uh, it very much is, of course. And chapter uh, nine of the book, I believe it is, and the book we just referenced is You Cannot Motivate Anybody You Don't Know. A line I got from one of your old principals, Howdy, uh, Al Gallup. Oh, yes. Uh, of Gallup Park fame. He is a 96 year old World War II veteran, still bikes every day, and still a good <laughs> friend of mine. But I quoted him because one of the simplest things is that if you don't know your people, you're in trouble. Uh, that's where trust is created, of course. That's where responsiveness, uh, two-way street, all that good stuff. And I've walked the plant with you, Howdy, and wherever we go, from the front lines to the drivers to the people in the secretarial offices and so on, it's, uh, it's not Mr. Holmes. It's Howdy, Howdy, Howdy. Yeah. And, uh, and they all know you, and you, all, you, all, you know them. Right. Uh, that's got to be a great advantage there. Yeah, and Howard does, too. And, it, it, you know, I think... I, I, we can't say that everybody knows everybody, but it's to but your it's point, close. <laughs> to your point, John. As as leaders of this organization, if we don't demonstrate caring and uh, and take the time to uh, you, you know build relationships with people, then we can't expect other people to do the same. Well, yeah. There you go. It's your advantage, of course. You guys are basically the little engine that could taking on General Mills and the other big guys out there. Um, Betty Crocker and whatnot, and you're uh, and you're more than holding your own, obviously. So we'll get to more of that, and we'll get to more with Howard, uh, the next generation, of course, here shortly. Uh, before I do, uh, your father, Howdy, mm-hmm. um, the original Howdy. Now we, we have to help the listeners here with the names. There are a lot of Howdy Holmeses around uh, around the history of this company. Uh, how, so everyone knows who the heck I'm talking about. Do your best to break it down for we laymen. 
Okay, well, so let's we'll start with the founder, whose name was Harmon S. Holmes, and uh, and then his son was Howard Samuel Holmes, who mm-hmm. was my grandfather. Harmon was my great grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, and Howard the first Howard Samuel Holmes's uh, son, really uh, is. Howard and Dudley Holmes, and then um, you know I am the son of Howard Holmes. Uh, my father's middle name is S, and my middle name is S. But he's Sumner, and I'm Samuel. So it's very, very confusing. And then of course there's Howard, and Howard is uh, Howard, Howard being your son. Howard being on the line today, right? Is he's he's uh, technically named after my great grandfather. And uh, yes, my grandfather, Howard S. Holmes, who actually was uh, took over as a president in about 1911. Uh, wow. and, and then in 1936, uh, unfortunately, tragically, was killed in an accident here, uh, going to the top of one of the grain silos to to uh, check the temperature of the wheat and the airlift or pardon me the man lift today we would call them elevators but in those days they were uh they were man lifts basically a a uh a, a sheet of thick steel with a cable in each four corners that went up tied together at the top and then there were a pulley around and a counterweight and that's what what it was in those days well uh it broke and he fell to his death so oh. uh you know, so then you know my father Howard Sumner uh, and myself Howard Samuel uh, and my son, or I should say our son Howard Samuel Holmes is second. It's uh, mm-hmm. so it's a long line of uh, of, of Holmeses. As a matter of fact, um, I am would be like fifth generation uh, here in Chelsea, and it turns out that my great great and my great great great-grandfather were also in the milling business, but it was in Sio Township. Uh, and uh, so there, there's uh, quite a line of uh, heritage, quite a line of responsibility uh, uh, and, you know, pride as well. What did you learn from your father, Howdy, about running the business? And to, to summarize that, by the way, there are basically four Howard S. Holmeses of various flavors, <laughs> not quite juniors in three and right. four, but basically ho- four generations of Howard S. Holmeses. Uh, right. And they alternate between being called Howdy and Howard. Yeah. So we can keep that clear. Howdy is the dad in this case, and Howard is the son on the line as well. But what did you learn from your dad about how to lead this company, or your mom for that matter? Well, my mom, uh, you know, who was affectionately known, her real name is Mary, but she went by Tiny. Uh, she was quite the pistol and, and, uh, wasn't really involved uh, in, in the company except, uh, you know, w- when there were customers around and, and, and Howard maybe took him out to dinner or something like that. She was involved in that. But I think, John, the, uh, the, the thing that there are many things that I learned from my father. Uh, and, you know, people learn primarily through observation. And, uh, and, and so I remember when we lived here in Chelsea, uh, we moved in Arbor when I was four, uh, and 
I remember spending time with my father out here on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, and uh, so through observation, he always, um, you know, when he would, would talk with people, he would look them in the eye, you know, mm. and he would listen. Uh, he would let people say what they wanted. He, he, he never tried to be dominant in any sort of way. And uh, I, I think that's something that uh, I can't say I was that way in my uh, younger days. <laughs> I was, uh, I was uh, quite aggressive in things. Uh, it, but, you know, you don't, you pick up things from, from people that they don't immediately get, you know, put to use. You, you, you watch and you find a way for them to, to fit into your presentation and sometimes uh, there's delays of decades and so on so the uh, attention to uh, people and his presence was something I'll never forget uh, his uh, sort of work ethic was something uh, was admired uh, by and and many keep in mind uh, you know growing up in the 40s and the 50s and, and so on um, they were different times and you know men's responsibility or dad's responsibility was that you know that they were the hunters and the gatherers uh, and and those guys were five six seven days a week I was always seven days a week so grew up watching this uh, and uh, you know mm-hmm. his sort of ability to communicate with people in a uh, in a in a very comfortable way was something I all admired. Hmm. As far as when do you pick up these lessons, of course, one of the phrases from the book is yeah. uh, from this book is you water all the and you see who grows and you don't know when or how it's going to happen. Some lay dormant for a long time. Uh, some when they're twenty five, thirty, thirty five, they pick it up. It's pretty amazing, and that's why it's staying in touch is so much fun. But you with your dad learned some very important lessons there. Before empathy was used as a business term, your dad was practicing this with eye contact, uh, showing people by giving them his full attention. Obviously, that's pretty cool. So, in many ways, the most important lessons are these. And what I've often said in my corporate speeches is, tend to get the technical stuff, the hard stuff right, whether it's engineering or million in your case, um, automotive, whatever it is. It's the it's the seemingly simpler ideas taking care of people that we usually do a poor job of. Uh, it's a great lesson from your dad, of course. You grew up not at all clear that you're going to be mm-hmm. involved in the company growing up. You grew mm-hmm. up 60 forward uh, on the hockey team at Ann Arbor High School back then. Of course, the Pioneers. State champions, I believe, at least one year in there. Playing for the famous Art Armstrong from Boston, Art Armstrong. Um, what was it about hockey that attracted you? And then from there, you got into autom- automotive wrestling. Two-time state champs. What was the, uh, let's get that one right. There you go. Um, what attracted you to hockey? Because you're as small as I am, of course, so not a natural game for us. Uh, and then what attracted you to racing after that? Uh, I think the hockey uh, interest was, I remember the first time I, I skated was out here in Chelsea with my cousin Dudley, uh, my uncle, my, you know, hmm. my father's twin uh, son, and uh, there's a little creek out here called Let's Creek. It's not very wide. At its widest, it might be four or five feet. Uh, and uh, where mm-hmm. the skates come from, I don't recall. 
but I do remember ta- taping uh, on my shins, uh, Town and Country magazine. Uh, they were the they're the shin pads of the day, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, you hear that, Howard? This, uh, this is old school for you, right there, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Town and Country, Town and Country magazine is, is no longer in existence. And, um, but, uh, and John, you know, growing up in uh, Ann Arbor, we moved to Ann Arbor when I was, as I said, when I was four, 1951. But, uh, you know, every winter, uh, there were, you know, lots of parks that, uh, that had ice rinks. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a very, natural thing for kids to do or you know young boys and girls but the uh, you know the best part was hockey at burns park and uh you know every day uh or certainly on the weekends uh or late afternoons you could go to burns park and and, and you know find a game of hockey there are a lot of, lot of players that uh you know sort of hone their skills there and i happen to be one of them I never was really, you know, you know, a, a great player. I was a good player. Uh, uh, one of the feisty kind of guys, as you referred to. Uh, I, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed checking people. Uh, you know, I was better at uh, assist, getting assists than goals. Um, but uh, uh, so it was, it was a natural thing. You could not join the Ann Arbor Amateur Hockey Association until you were eight years old. And mm-hmm. um, I remember standing in line, uh, and it was, my birthday is the middle of December, and this was early December, so I was standing there with my father. I was really seven, and when I got to the front of the desk to register, they asked, how old was my father? Answered, he's eight. And uh, I'll never forget that because I never, that's the only lie that I, that I have <laughs> any idea that he said. And it, that impressed me. So, <laughs> um, this must be important. Right? It was important. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he did it for me. And I, I realized that. And uh, so I'll never mm-hmm. forget that one. Uh, and, and, and also, by the way, again, I'm a small guy. You're a small guy. You're eight and probably not the same size as the six-year-olds. So he's putting you in the line of fire, basically, in the line of danger. But he trusted you that you could handle it. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a great thing. And also back to Burns Park. One thing that happens when you play, you know, sandlot baseball, uh, hoops down at the local park, whatever else, is you've got to handle your own disputes, pick your own teams, solve your own hassles and all this stuff. Yeah. Skills that I'm afraid we tend to lose. When we're on a van going to soccer practice all the time and run by adults, everything's run by adults. Yeah. We've lost the ability in some ways to negotiate our own problems. But uh, that's an aside, of course. From the old man, Howard, listen to the old man on that one. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so you signed up for hockey. You obviously loved it. Um, I, your team won two, not one, two state titles. And you're a big part um, of that. And I hear a lot of – what's that? I, I was going to say we almost won three out of three. In fact, uh, we did win two. Uh, our third uh, – uh, the third one we lost in double overtime to Port Huron Northern. So, uh, you know, the 63 through 64 through 66 team, I think, has compiled the best win-loss record of, of still from, from anybody. And, and uh, Ann Arbor is a hotbed, as you know, for, you know, great hockey. I, I will point out that uh, my dad's gone. He's going to probably, um, you know, scold me somehow for telling this story. <laughs> but... Um, 
My father was very active in getting high school, high school hockey started uh, in Ann Arbor. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and uh, he, he, he quietly uh, sort of helped the, uh, the athletic department with some funding to mm-hmm. uh, start the program. And, uh, and the first uh, coach was, was Tim Ryan. He actually was mm-hmm. a cross-country coach at the time. And, and um, my very good friend, Art Armstrong, was, was the, came in on the second year. But uh, that's a story that uh, not, not too many people know. Uh, in fact, there was a, a, a young lady, uh, her name's uh, uh, Ava uh, Millman, who wrote, uh, wrote this story uh, a couple of years ago when she was a senior at, at, at Pioneer. And hmm. she did a lot of research about that. So, you know, at, at he, Howard, my father, gets a lot of credit for uh, sort of initiating organized hockey in Ann Arbor. Kind of like that. Uh, I believe the Ann Arbor Amateur Hockey Association, one of the first around, started in 1954. So that all sounds about right. Uh, 50th anniversary not that long ago. So uh, you graduate from high school. Um, you go to Eastern Michigan University. But then the racing bug gets you. What did you love about racing? And, of course, how far did you take it? Uh, Howdy Holmes was the Indianapolis 500, Indy 500, Rookie of the Year in 1979 on the front row with Tom Sneva and some big names up there. So uh, race us, if you will, through the uh, racing history. What attracted you to it? And how you, what did you learn along the way? Oh, uh, I, we don't have enough time to, to explain what I learned. But uh, the attract- You got two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I can do this. The attraction was, uh, other than Christmas, I'm the eldest of, of five children. And other than Christmas, the one thing we did together as a family was go to the Indy 500. Uh, wow. The first time I went was uh, 1954. And uh, it's a long story how we got interested in it, but we did it every year. And to me, uh, as a young guy, um, you know, watching these cars go around, uh, it just, I thought I wanted to be a race car driver. I had no idea what was involved. Uh, so we'll fast forward to uh, 1968 when the, the Michigan International Speedway was built uh, and they offered a, a private driver's school one summer uh, and I went and that was it uh, all those you know, childhood the dreams and memories were um, sort of uh, surfaced uh, and so uh, I actually left college uh, quit college in my senior year, not something I'm proud of, but ordered a set of uh, tools through a catalog for $69.95, built a homemade trailer with Bruce Benz, uh, and uh, uh, brought a, a single-seat open-wheel Formula Ford, F-O-R-D, uh, road racing car, and uh, and the guys out here at Chelsea Millen Company built me a 12-by-20-foot plywood garage, and I was in business. I had no more idea than a rabbit uh, what happened. So I know we're running up against the two minutes. So, you know, I started my own, um, my own business uh, and, you know, taking engines out, taking them, take them apart and all that. And I made a lot of mistakes over the, over the years. I drove in a lot of different types of cars, uh, you know, uh, SCSA regional champion a couple times, moved up into Formula Atlantic, was Formula Atlantic. A rookie of the year was former Atlantic champion in 1979, Indy 500. Uh, 
like we did there six times, started on the front row, started on the back row, uh, had the best average finishing record of anybody from 1911 through 1988 when I retired. You, you did it. And, right. And, and had a uh, marketing and business and advertising business, and I wrote a book. Uh, which was book of the year was ESPN's first color commentator. So I did a variety of different things, which taught me in the, in the immense amount of, uh, uh, I'll say things, uh, uh, you know, logistics, travel, uh, marketing, um, advertising, business lessons, basically. Business. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so it's really interesting when I, I'd always intended to come back to Chelsea Milling Company, but I, mm-hmm. I didn't know I was going to have the opportunity to follow a boyhood dream for 20 years. But mm-hmm. when I came back, I realized uh, that as a, you know, we're a, we're a manufacturer. We make things. It's all about equipment. Well, racing's mm-hmm. all about equipment. Racing's all about, That's interesting. you know, get performance out of the equipment. And uh, so I, I could not have ever had a better background. For this ever. That's fascinating. So IndyCar racing and milling in Chelsea, Michigan for Jiffy Mixes, actually I have more parallels than you'd ever expect is what it turns out to be. Yeah, they're twin sisters. Twin sisters. How about that? One one goes faster than the other, but one tastes better, so there's that. <laughs> um, but you were, in fact, the Rookie of the Year in 1979. You're on the front front line with Tom Sneva. And who is the other one you're on the line with? Oh, this, this unknown guy by the name of Rick Mears. Yeah, Rick Mears. Okay. Uh, probably about 10, 12 times between those two guys. So <laughs> it worked. But then I'll take a brief break here. When we come back, we'll talk about how Howdy Holmes, the fourth generation of this Holmes family, making uh, flour and whatnot in Chelsea, Michigan, how he took over the nation's leading uh, prepared mix company, Jiffy Mixes, and took it to the next level here after this break. I'm John Bacon on Let Them Lead, uh, the risk and rewards of leading in today's world with Howdy Holmes and his son, Howard Holmes, Back in a minute. This podcast grew out of John U. Bacon's latest book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. In it, John Bacon explains how they turned around the Ann Arbor-Huron High School Hockey Team from worst to first in three years by changing the culture, building trust, and letting the players take over the team. Boston Globe columnist Dan Shaughnessy said, Let Them Lead is where Ted Lasso meets the Mighty Ducks. You can order Let Them Lead from John U. Bacon at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, BAM, Books A Million, and your local bookseller. Just ask for Let Them Lead by John U. Bacon. Welcome back. This is John Bacon on Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with my good friends, Howdy Holmes, uh, the CEO and president of Jiffy Mixes. You see the little blue box in your grocery store. And his son, Howard Holmes, uh, the executive vice president and chief operating officer. So you've run through your indie career here, six years down there with the best average finish of anybody from 1911 to 1988. Pretty incredible. Uh, now you're going to transfer that in 1987 back to Jiffy Mixes when you take over the company. What did you find and what did you focus on and what did you do? What I found was the company that uh, time had kind of uh, left behind. Uh, it, 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 all the facilities, the systems, and the people were pretty much unchanged. 
hadn't had a price increase in uh, in eight years, uh, and I was uh, alarmed, um, and uh, I, and so I was determined to, um, you know, re- let's say redo the foundation and look to the future, um, but it wasn't quite that easy uh, to our employees and everybody else. I was considered, uh, aside from being the oldest son, uh, the oldest child of Howard and Tiny Homes, uh, I was a quote-unquote race car driver. So what in the world could I possibly know about anything uh, other than taking risks? And and I say that uh, with a, a great deal of angst because that's what people thought. And, uh, you know, to, ex- to explain to people um, the education 20 years of, of motorsports and all the things that go on behind the scenes, nobody wants to know that, right? And and so there was also another problem. Uh, there was a, you know, as a family business, only 26% of them make it to the second generation. Uh, and so there was a significant amount of uh, a conflict uh, because I wanted to change things uh, and nothing had been changed for a long time. And uh, so there were, I'll say, differences of opinion about that. And all, all of this drama played out uh, on in front of our employees. Uh, so it took a number of years to prove myself to our employees, for the employees to prove themselves to me, to get through this, uh, this family uh, drama. Uh, there's nothing like waking up one day and uh, find yourself above the, above the fold, Column one, Wall Street Journal, with the byline that says "fist fights in Jiffyville." It's not something a family, any family, uh, enjoys, uh, but it, that was reality. From my perspective, uh, you know, maybe I wasn't, um, you know, didn't know everything. I understand that, but one thing was certain: uh, I was going to uh, fix it, and along with. Um, a group of people that are from the outside uh, because it clearly wasn't being done uh, the way it then sort of approached. I, this is by no means a, a, a negative comment about my father or anybody else. It's a natural thing that happens. You know, you, you if, if you forget to climb a tree every now and then and figure out where magnetic north is, uh, you wake up with, you know, no market share or people taking your, your business away from you. And uh, so um, there were there were really difficult days for everybody. Uh, and my approach was I wanted to sort of uh, professionalize the business by bringing in people from the outside. And one by one, uh, we did that uh, and formed a team. Uh, and uh, well, here we are. Thirty uh, some odd years later, uh, and uh, you know, an extremely efficient operation with great, great people who, you know, after learning how to collaborate and make good decisions and know how to communicate properly with with each other, we have a a strategic advantage against our competition. Well, very smart. So once that, we got to return to. Only 26% of family businesses reach the second generation. Right. So basically one out of four can go one generation. 
you're already the fourth generation. Your son on the line here today will be the fifth generation, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so the odds of that are clearly less than 1% at that point. Um, what is different about running a family business versus General Mills when you're competitors? A couple of things. Uh, family businesses, uh, their, uh, their concentration or their, their vision is on the horizon. Uh, and they make decisions that are best for the long term, not the short term. Uh, we, we don't we don't have public uh, share, uh, shareholders who uh, you know get the scorecard every ninety days uh, uh, about the performance and have to kind of um, zig and zag to please Wall Street. So mm-hmm. uh, family businesses outperform uh, public businesses by about a percent and a half. Uh, wow. that they are they are much more inclined to be involved philanthropically philanthropically <laughs> yes. thank you very much <laughs> and um uh and their vision is, is on the horizon and not the short term uh and uh we you know running your own business is, is kind of the, the american dream uh it, it i think that there's some identifiable reasons why only Twenty-six percent make it uh, to the second generation, John. Mm-hmm. Or another way to say that the way I like to express that is seventy-four percent fail. Good point. Yes. So, uh, so with that high of a failure rate, I think that there are some some identifiable things that can that can you know change that percentage. And quite frankly, you know, if I had to reduce it to you know one phrase, I would say you don't make family decisions with your head and you don't make business decisions with your heart. And if you can't tell the difference between the two, they're both in trouble. <laughs> that one is worth repeating. Yeah. You can't make family decisions with your head. You can't make business decisions with your heart. If you don't know the difference, you're in trouble. That's... They're, they're both in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> they're both in trouble. Yes. Your head yeah. and your heart and your business and your family. So this so, is uh, an interesting lead in if, if I could uh, sure. kind of, you know, I want to give Howard, uh, you know, his uh, due and perspective and so on. So because family business failure rate is so hard, one of the things that most families don't do is they don't talk uh, to each other. Uh, and uh, and there's this expectancy in family businesses that maybe children uh, are, uh, without talking about it, expected to take over or not. And the thing is... Uh, mm-hmm. A family business is almost like another child. I mean, you're really uh, are committed. Uh, it's a huge commitment. So you don't want a child, a, a next generation, to be involved in the business if he or she isn't interested. And you owe it to that child, whether it's a son or daughter, to kind of you know give them a perspective uh, that they're not expected to come into the family biz- business. If they want to, well, you know, that's a different thing. So it's pretty precarious. And uh, since the, I went through the, the wars of, of family businesses and really have a, a, a keen interest in trying to help others, uh, I uh, and Howard and I did a, a great job of, you know, trying to set the stage and talk about expectancies or not uh, from an early age. And with that, I think it's probably uh, a good idea to, to get what, you know, see what Howard thinks about that. 
Howard, on your on your side, by the way, first of all, what you're the only child, of course, of uh, Howdy and Carol. Um, but you didn't have to do this. Uh, what were your thoughts growing up about being part of the company and not being part of the company? That's the first step. And then second of all, eventually taking a leadership role. Sure. Um, you know, as Howdy said, I, I, from a very young age, I was educated on the business, but not pressured to be a part of it. Uh, I think the way that I learned about the business was uh, unique in the sense because it became a place that I, I, I wanted to experience, <clears throat> literally go to, you know, s- sit on my dad's lap, drive a forklift around, walk around the facility, mm-hmm. uh, see, see the machinery, make, make our products, meet the people, feel the business, uh, observe the business. And, and, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, when I was five, six, seven, eight, you know, the wonders of the world were grand. And, you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up was 50 different things. Um, but as I got older and, and, you know, middle school and high school and college, um, you know, I had my own list of things that I wanted to accomplish and experience. But Chelsea Milling Company was, was always in there. Uh, and I really didn't know where until I started working here. Um, as a summer job in high school and college and, and really got to see uh, the culture of the business and, and what we made and, and who we sell our products to and, and how we perform as a company as, you know, a young adult and, and with some perspective. Uh, it, it was then that I realized that this was something that I wanted to be a part of. Um, but at the same time, I recognized that in order to be effective, uh, and even to join the company, I needed to I needed to bring some experience with me. So when I graduated from Albion College in 2011, uh, I went and worked for a road racing team, uh, Total Performance Racing, and did some marketing for them for three and a half years. And after that, I said, uh, "Let's give this Chelsea Milling Company thing a shot and and see what it's like." So I uh, joined the company as a sales associate. And I think sales is an incredible way to learn any business uh, because you need to know the internal workings and the external marketplace and how those two collide and, and, and work with one another. Um, so that really was kind of the, the genesis of how I got to the business. Uh, but, you know, more importantly, uh, I, I think that what attracted me the most was was learning about the culture and the leadership style that, that Howdy brought to the organization and, and not just Howdy, but other executives, CFOs to general managers um, and the way that they chose to run the business was certainly different than most uh, because as Howdy said, you know, we, we weren't looking to um, turn the greatest profit that we could every 90 days. It was what can we do to create sustainable long-term growth? And that is a very different philosophy then what's the greatest profit that we can put in our pocket uh, every period or every quarter or every year? So it, it, it certainly was, uh, was a great uh, youth experience learning from Howdy. You know, every car ride to hockey practice, we might spend 10, 15 <laughs> minutes on, 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 a, on, a, on a morsel, right? Yeah, just one, right. one simple thing about, uh, you know, how, whether it be a, a leadership style or, or the importance of relationships with your employees uh, or, or even the fact that a great leader needs to have a personality. You can't just be, um, <laughs> you know, something that's stashed away in in the corner office that's never seen by the organization. 
because I think effective leaders need to be present. Mm-hmm. Need to be present. I like that phrase. And by that, uh, what do you mean? Well, I think it's I think it's easy for you know CEOs and presidents to be um, behind a closed door dealing with large scale strategic uh, opportunities that are going to create um, some 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 growth or some some sizzle for the company. But I, I think real effectiveness and truly understanding the inner workings of a business is you need to be out on the floor. You need to communicate with your managers and department leaders and facilitators. And if you don't do that, I think you're going to miss some very important detail that can either make or break uh, a decision that you may be a part of making. Uh, At Chelsea Milling Company, we're extremely collaborative in terms of our decision making. And, And so I think everyone Uh, has to have the necessary perspective and detail required to make the best decision. Uh, And I think that we practice that very well here. Uh, I love that, by the way. And that's uh, absolutely true. It's in the book as well. Uh, Management by walking around works because there are certain conversations you have at the water cooler or the cafeteria, the vending machine, whatever else that you will not have when you have a formal meeting. So a chance to get to people, get to know people as people, and also you become more approachable. They'll bring more ideas to you that way than they probably will in the average meeting because they're more nervous about that naturally. It's a more stilted environment. Great line from Colin Powell. It's also in the book. Uh, the day your people quit bringing you their problems and their ideas is the day that you quit being their leader. So they got to be able to find you in somewhere else other than the corner office. So yeah. that, Howard, very well done. You're a young man for all this. How old are you now? 30-something. How old are you? 33. 33 years 33. Old. And for the record, by the way, I once coached against Howard Holmes, when he was uh, a star at Ch- the Chelsea High School Bulldogs, <laughs> and we were in, we were in uh, bi- biannual uh, battles at that point. So great player, smart player. So no <laughs> surprise you. there. Um, you've been now at the company for basically about 10, 12 years, probably longer than that if you add the time in junior high school and high school and so on. Yeah. Um, what do you see now that you didn't see before, and does this excite you? Is it simply an easy way? You know, Your family owns the business, obviously. That's a part of it. But you, you still have many options. What about this excites you uh, versus doing something else? Well, I, I think it's, it's the way the company has positioned itself for future growth. Um, you know, as Howie spoke about, we, we've been a, a retail manufacturer for 90 plus years. It's where we developed uh, one of the most recognized brands in the country, a Jiffy Mix. And in 2007, we got into the food service business. Uh, and so I'll define food service business as basically every other place you can buy food other than the grocery store. So from <laughs> restaurants to bars to hotels, airlines, cruise ships, casinos, schools, you name it. Um, you know, that's the food indus- the, the food service industry. And so identifying that that was a huge growth opportunity for us was what, what I would describe as a, a pivot moment for the business. Uh, that that I think will serve, I know, will serve the business for a, a very, very long time uh, and, and certainly provides us the greatest growth opportunity, pounds growth opportunity. And so it's certainly exciting to, to recognize that there is growth ahead and we've positioned ourselves well to achieve market share in the food service space, uh, continue to, to put the Jiffy brand in, in parts of uh, the food world that it wasn't before, but additionally, you know, I, I, I'll I'll be I'll be selfish for a moment, and I'll I'll say that it, it is exciting to try and have the opportunity to 
put put my stamp on the business. Howdy certainly put his in a, in a great way. Uh, he's a charismatic leader. He's a caring guy. Uh, you know, as he alluded to earlier, when when he came back to the business, it was in it was in pretty serious need of of some reinvention. I don't think the business needs to be reinvented now, but I do think that there are opportunities across our organization which we're taking advantage of, of implementing new technologies, both on the manufacturing floor uh, and the software and hardware side of the business. Uh, I think from a hiring standpoint, we are, we're, we're in great shape. We have an incredible team here at Chelsea Milling Company all the way through the profile from you know, executive leadership all the way down to you know, the newest hires. We put a lot of effort into hiring, uh, not just the best uh, person that can perform a task, but the best person from a character standpoint uh, is extremely uh, important for being hired into Chelsea Milling Company. Because look, one one bad apple can sour the bunch, and um, I think there's no other environment truer to see that than you know a family business or or medium sized organization, especially manufacturing business where. You know, everybody needs to be able to understand the importance of their role and what it means to be a team player. So there's a lot to be excited about at Chelsea Million Company, John, and um, just just happy to to be a part of it and and be able to contribute. I love it. Uh, You also hit upon a central theme, I believe, that's certainly one of mine, uh, higher for character. Look, your people, your turnover rate is incredibly low at Chelsea Mm -hmm. Million slash Jiffy Mixes. I forget what the percentage is, but it's insanely low. It's point Uh, something. Yeah, it's zero point something. And this, by the way, is a company that, as we said earlier, has got a vertical integration. So we're talking about, you know, the guys who make the cardboard boxes, the, the truck drivers, the people on the front line who are making, of course, the, uh, the product itself. Um, so it's not just one thing or the other. All these guys basically almost never leave. Um, and if that's the case, your business is going to change quite a bit in 20 or 30 years. So you better hire for character more than any particular knowledge because that knowledge is going to change naturally. And a great line from Warren Buffett was you want three things. You want intelligence, you want ambition, and you want a character. If you hire the first two without the third, you're screwed <laughs> because that guy is really smart and very powerful and he's going to screw you over. So, uh, so reverse the order of those two things right there. So um, yep. that's pretty cool right there. Um, going forward, by the way, I'm going to boil it down to three takeaways. Uh, that's what I do on the show every single time. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, but of course, in your case, I got four or five. So here I go editing live on air. This would be fun right there. Family businesses are fundamentally different than, uh, than of course, private businesses and public business, I guess I should say. Um, you think more long-term than short-term, about a 1.5% advantage. But most importantly, uh, with your family, you can't think with your head. And with your business, you can't think with your heart. And if you don't know the difference, both are in trouble. I like that one, Howdy. So there's one big takeaway. Um, Second of all, the vertical aspect we talked about. By going as really as turbo vertical as you guys have, you've reduced a lot of variables. That's one of the great side effects of that is that there's very little out of your control. So that's true for any business. The more variables you can knock out, uh, the better off you're going to be. And three, I'm going to say kind of the same thing. I'm going to say hire for character, but along those lines, the boss has got to be present. And that harkens back, Howard, to your grandfather looking people in the eye, shaking their hands. They didn't call it back that back in the 1940s, I don't think, but that's what it boils down to. It's the same idea, treating people with respect and being present and being available around the, uh, around the plant. So hire for character more than any particular skill. So there you go. Family business, vertical, avoid uh, variables, and then hire for character. I like it. Now, last question is, for both of you, who was your favorite teacher of all time, any grade, any level? 
<laughs> oh, that's an easy one for me. Uh, his name is uh, Matt Pedlow. He's at Chelsea High School. Uh, still, uh, still friends with him today. In fact, uh, he brings his AP Econ class through, and I kind of walk them through the differences between variable and fixed costs in our business. Uh, he's a great man. He's an incredible educator and a good friend. That's an easy one for me. There you go. I gotta love that. Uh, was he easy? Was he easy? Uh, yes. No, he he. No, he, I wouldn't say easy, uh, <laughs> but he 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 made you think, uh, made you conceptualize, uh, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just about the right or the wrong answer. It was about how you how you learn to come to a conclusion, and I think that was very valuable. Gotta love that. Uh, and Howard, or Howardy, I should say. Yeah, that's so fine. Uh, your favorite. We're, we're going back a bit to uh, Ann Arbor Public Schools in the 50s and 60s. Right. What do you got? Well, and maybe college. I'm coming up with uh, Art Armstrong. I mean, how can it not be? Uh, and, you, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not just teacher uh, in the classroom, which he did, of course, but uh, it's, it's lessons away from the classroom that count. And as the you know, the hockey coach and so on. Uh, uh, I, I let's, let's just say I kind of challenged him. Uh, and, I believe that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he had a way of, he was clearly in charge. Uh, and, um, you know, he taught me many, many, many less life lessons. Uh, and I'm honored <clears throat> to say that um, when he got sick, It's kind of losing. Mm. When he gets sick, um, they wanted him to walk, but he wouldn't walk. And so I was in the hospital. And I said, "Are you get you got to walk, man?" <laughs> Sorry, and uh, I was the last guy that he ever walked with. So that's what he meant to me. Mm. Sure. That's quite all right. Uh, that emotion is real and well-earned. Uh, I knew Art Armstrong fairly well, not the way you did. I never played for him. I went to Ann Arbor Huron High School. And, of course, Art Armstrong coached at Ann Arbor Pioneer, where he won multiple state titles and produced a number of top-notch Division I hockey players, including a lot of guys at Michigan. Uh, but I'll say this about Art. Uh, having played against uh, and his son, Steve, good friend of mine, we're the same age, and then we coached against each other years later in the book. Um, but when I became uh, assistant coach at Culver Academies in Indiana, which is also in the book, um, I got put in charge of goaltending, about which I knew absolutely nothing. I was a forward. And I go, okay, well, who the heck can I ask about this? And the first guy who popped in my head was Art Armstrong with the famous Boston accent, Art Armstrong. <laughs> um, and I wrote him a letter because back then that's what you did in 1986, um, asking for you know, any help, any guidance. And within a week, I got a big package of books from Britannia and other great Golden experts of the day. Um, four or five books from Art with a lovely note. This man owed me nothing. Uh, we were rivals of anything. Um, and that's the kind of guy Art Armstrong was. So uh, you earned it there well. And by the way, I've asked that question more than 100 times in Vancouver, Chile, Santiago, and Sao Paulo, Brazil, all across the United States. And in English, Portuguese, or Espanol, the answers, by the way, are always about the same. The teacher uh, was demanding, but cared about me a great deal, and I did not want to let them down. And that applies to both Mr. Pedlow, obviously, as well as to uh, Mr. Armstrong. So well done there. Uh, 
Grab a Kleenex there, Howdy. You earned it. Yep. Thanks. Um, my guests have been uh, Howdy Holmes and his son, Howard Holmes, the fourth and fifth generations of Chelsea Milling, better known to you as Jiffy Mixes, the little blue box in your grocery store about how to run a family business as effectively or more so than a uh, private business. So uh, well done there, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming down. Well, we Thank appreciate the, the time, uh, John. You know, uh, I've known you a long time. You were, uh, do a great job. I respect uh, you as a professional. Uh, I appreciate you as a friend. And uh, both Howard and I appreciate the opportunity to spend this morning with you. Well, yeah, I appreciate again, that. Appreciate it. Thank you, Howard. From uh, and by the way, your dad, of course, being one of my role models and mentors along the way, so that means a whole lot. And I'll try not to grab a Kleenex myself, Howard. So I'll <laughs> do that after I get off the air. But uh, anyway, gentlemen, a lot of fun. This has been uh, Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today, with a great perspective from a fifth-generation family business, one of the nation's leading businesses, uh, Jiffy Mixes. So Holmes. Uh, Howard and Howdy, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. You can connect with our host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, by visiting his website, letthemleadbybacon.com. We hope you had some fun, learned a few things you can use tomorrow, and think about the rest of your life. Come back next week for more unexpected lessons in leadership, and we'll see you then.